For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the hosts of Boom Goddess Radio tell about creating a podcast designed specifically for their generation. Barbara Kingsolver talks about her latest novel, Unsheltered. And travel writer Jane Stern on exploring the very best American road food. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In 2015, a Tucson group called the Network of Extraordinary Women held a meeting that brought together local residents Barbara Peters, Andrea Gould-Marx, and Jennifer Davis-Page. The three of them discussed the idea of creating a podcast that would represent the concerns and the sources of inspiration that were most important to them, to share with others, especially the women of their generation. Now in its third year, Boom Goddess Radio presents weekly episodes on subjects including secret addictions, befriending social media in your 50s, suddenly becoming single, and proactive aging. I asked two of the three Boom Goddess hosts, Barbara Peters, also known as BB, and Andrea Gould-Marks, to join me to share how they brainstorm about such a deep range of subjects. You know, it's hard to put a, a top on the pot because between the three of us, we are really just uh, in bloom when it comes to ideas. And so we talk about things that are close to us personally, things that have inspired us either by reading or listening to NPR or any type of inspirational pieces that come across our life. And one of those entities that gives us information and feedback is this marvelous network of extraordinary women that we've created and we use them as a little focus group so that's another venue for topics. I also have a secret door to topics. As a psychologist and a therapist for many decades, the subjects of love and relationship, the issues of health and well-being, all kinds of lifestyle choices, the dilemmas around creativity and productivity, passion, purpose, our work, love, those topics circulate around my life on a daily basis. So almost anything is really game for inspiration. Any conversation that we have usually holds a germ of, hmm, this is going to be a good topic. Well, BB, tell our listeners where Boom Goddess comes from. It's a great phrase, but it actually has some deep meaning behind it. It does indeed, yes. Of course, when you begin a project, you want to create a name that will be lasting and empowering and impressive on people's minds. So we did that in one of our brainstorming periods. And Boom Goddess, Boom is short for Boomer the age group that makes up the largest percentage of the universe, it seems. And <laughs> the earthly universe. The <laughs> earthly universe. And um, we love the sound of it because it's a very explosive sound. And you see that jagged edge, boom, you know. So something's going on there. And goddess is a very special and unique term to us. And it really 
looks at it from a muse perspective. And Dr. Andrea can talk a little bit more about the goddess beginnings. Going back, I have some Jungian roots and some of the most emblematic females uh, were goddesses. And simple, like Athena, the goddess of wisdom, or Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And it seemed to me that every time I meet another woman, I see the goddesses within her. And so boom and goddess seem to go very, very well together because we are the boomer generation and we are the most advantaged, educated, um, connected generation. And so we connected those two concepts and put them together and somehow it just clicked. As a therapist, you have training in dealing with difficult subjects and for treading in delicate emotional waters. But tell me about a time when you were challenged with a topic that you chose for Boom Goddess Radio, something that maybe brought you, Andrea, out of your comfort zone a little bit and what the result was. That's an interesting question. I think one of my favorite topics to explore was the issue of friendship. And we talked about right away derailed friendships and all three of us initially in the brainstorming you know yielded up right away a very sensitive and difficult relationship of ours that somehow melted away disappeared caused so much hurt and distress and then we went ahead and interviewed lots of other ladies and we found that there was not one interview where somebody said that never happened to me So we ourselves carried a fair amount of emotion with that. Um, So it was a difficult subject, but um, this is what happens. None of us are alone with it. And we discovered by exploring and researching that this is so common, even the men began to yield up information about sad relationships for them too. So that's one that we will continue to explore the whole upside and bright side of friendships and the, and the side of friendships that really bring us to despair. Well, an equal partner in your program is Jennifer Davis-Page, who couldn't be with us today for this interview, but I'd like to give you each a chance to tell me about something that Jennifer brings to the team. We have an episode called Questions That Have No Right to Go Away, which is actually a line taken from a David White poem. And it was the week that there was a, um, a terrorist attack in Nice and many other devastating kinds of things where we decided that we weren't going to record anything but just our own conversation about our own upset. Jennifer has three sons and raised them in Chicago and is a woman of color and has shared with us so many of the trials and tribulations about raising three boys who lived in danger of being arrested just because of their color. Um, The diversity among the three of us, the different perspective on life and our experiences um, can be heard in almost all of our episodes. I see her, when I close my eyes, as this maximum fashionista. She was a model at one time, so there you go. And she also worked with Hugh Hefner in marketing his products. So she has an extreme amount of varied experience. And people 
meet her on the street and tell her their life stories. There's something about that. So she wants to be the voice for every woman in America and the world. Do you have any goals that you can share with us for Boom Goddess Radio, BB? Not that you haven't accomplished a lot, but I just have a feeling that you also have places you want to go. Absolutely, we do. And we definitely want to continue to talk about more personal self-care. That has shown to us to be a very important point. Uh, We want to talk about singularity and life as a single person and as a growth opportunity as well. We want to talk about more about activism, about making a real difference in a apolitical way, in a reconciling way, in an anthropological way. Because activism, as Dr. Andrea has shared, is the number one antidote to depression and anxiety. Personal activism and spiritual activism. And one of my absolute favorites is to talk and um, have as guests the amazing artists and musicians that really have populated almost every corner of our beautiful Tucson. No matter where I go, I've lived here now for nine years. I am astounded by the amount of writers, musicians, art aficionados, artists of all types, muralists. It just blows me away. And I want to draw them into the conversation that we have. Because when we say we want to ignite and inspire something in women, well, these artists really show us how to to do that and how to make that happen. Thanks to Barbara Peters and Andrea Gould-Marks of Boom Goddess Radio. You can find their weekly podcast and dozens of archived shows online. We have a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Barbara Kingsolver is a best-selling author, essayist, and poet. Her books have been translated into more than 20 languages. Kingsolver is also a University of Arizona graduate and a former Tucson resident. She'll be returning to the Old Pueblo next week as part of a national tour for her new novel, Unsheltered. Tony Paniagua talks to Barbara Kingsolver about creating the book in this interview. Unsheltered is Barbara Kingsolver's first novel since 2012 when her previous book, Flight Behavior, became a bestseller. It's been a while, but Kingsolver has been staying busy. I've been working hard these six years. I, uh, I spent about three years plotting this book in my mind. In the book, Kingsolver creates two sets of characters. The first set of protagonists is an imaginary contemporary family that is facing common concerns in our society. I wanted to write about the these crazy times we're in, um, how um, our shelter seems to be failing us at so many levels, whether it's a new graduate with big debts and no job or a retiree without a pension or health care or cities going underwater thanks to new kinds of weather. Um, we're just getting soft, and it seems like we we cling to our tried and true solutions even when they don't seem to be working anymore on new problems. So I wanted to write about that. The other characters live in the 1870s, and some of them are people who really existed, so Kingsolver adds some history to the novel. Even though they are separated from the modern family by almost 150 years, 
Both time periods have similar tensions. It's so much about how we imagine the right way to be for the world to be organized. That's really what this, the book is about. Each century has issues such as economic struggles, immigration and racism, and political division. We always think, you know, we have never been in this fix before. But it's very interesting to me that right after the Civil War uh, in this country, we were absolutely as polarized as we are now. Along many of the same lines, we were really, at that time, two countries. Uh, It was very hard for, I mean, the Civil War had ended, but it was, you know, that's easier said than done. It was just about impossible for people to imagine how they were going to put this country back together. And people were afraid, uh, very insecure. The protagonists are also united by the setting. They live in the same corner of the small town of Vineland in southern New Jersey, which was promoted as a utopian community when it was founded in the 1800s. King Solver visited there while conducting research for her book. She had been reading about Charles Darwin and other important scientists of the time and was led to Mary Treat, an eccentric and passionate personality from that era. Who was an important correspondent of Darwin's um, who helped him with some of his experiments by long distance because she was in the U.S. And I thought, why have I never heard of this woman before? She left a, a large body of written work. She wrote many books hundreds of articles. She was a correspondent of all the important scientists of her day. And I never heard of her. Why? Because she's a woman. And she just kind of got forgotten uh, in the annals of, of men of science. So I went digging. I could learn very little about her. Nobody's ever written a biography of her. But I found out she had she had lived in this place called Vineland, New Jersey. So I called up the the historical society there thinking they might have some papers and they said oh man you have to come and look and so i did and it was a treasure trove she she had this really interesting life barbara one of the scenes that i love in the book with mary treat is her apparent self-sacrifice in the name of science she wants to find out if a carnivorous plant a venus flytrap will try to eat a bit of her finger did that really occur when mary treat was alive that really happened yeah, pretty much everything about Mary Treat is um, is is real. It came directly out of her writings. She wrote quite a lot of articles uh, for the for the popular press rather than for scientists to read. And so she she wrote about these things she did, these kind of experiments she did around her house with. Um, she would dig up spiders and put them in uh, these candy jars and bring them in her house, and then she would plant flowers in them uh, to disguise the um, the spiders so that her lady friends wouldn't be shocked when they came to visit. Uh, so, yeah, this is something she actually did as an experiment was to put her finger in into a Venus flytrap and, and see how long she could stand to sit there and let this Venus flytrap digest her finger. Uh, she lasted uh, four or five hours. So Mary Treat becomes a central figure in Unsheltered, and Kingsolver gets to incorporate her personal love of science and nature in her latest novel. I went to graduate school at the University of Arizona in ecology and evolutionary biology, and if any of my uh, old cl- <laughs> classmates or professors are listening, hello. Yes, I swore I would put that education to use, and I believe I am, because Every novel I write has some biology in it. Sometimes it's more 
conspicuous um, than than at other times. But in this novel, there's definitely a lot of science. There's a lot of these characters um, are scientists themselves have in both centuries. Um, have studied biology and are, um, you know, engaged in the debates of the time, and it was it was really fun. I, I always enjoy writing about science, and I and I feel it's a it's both a pleasure and a, a duty for me to do that because I'm one of about oh I don't know three or four novelists on planet Earth who um, got graduate degrees in in science. It's really rare for people to study science but write literature. She says one of the things she loves about writing is the freedom to address important issues, topics for reflection or discussion, but not make decisions for the reader. And what a novelist can do is not really solve or answer um, these questions, but really kind of turn them inside out and, and look at human behavior, sort of examine how, what does this do to us? How do we behave? Um, what are the universals of, of human nature? Um, what, and, and, and how have we handled these things in the past? Um, and might that shed some light on our future? For her future, Kingsolver is already crafting her next book, along with another major project. Well, I'm always writing the next book. I'm already working on the next book, and I'm also writing, um, I'm working on a, a screen adaptation of one of my novels, and I'm really not at liberty to talk too much about it, but I can uh, give you this much of a hint. I'm going to be traveling to Africa next year, so um, that will be that's, that will be part of the plan. Excellent. Well, Barbara Kingsolver, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck on your national tour, and we look forward to seeing you here in Tucson. I look forward to being there. Barbara Kingsolver returns to Tucson next Saturday. Antigone Books is sponsoring a talk and book signing on October 27th at 7 p.m. at the Berger Performing Arts Center, located at 1200 West Speedway. Ticket information is available online. For hungry travelers and food lovers with a taste for adventure, Jane and Michael Stern have been trusted trailblazing guides for over 40 years. An auspicious first date at a New York pizza parlor in 1969 opened the door to their shared culinary passions. That led to over 40 books, including the cult favorite Road Food that's now in its 10th edition. They also have a regular column in Gourmet Magazine, and NPR listeners may know them from their appearances on The Splendid Table. Jane Stern is also well-known as a tarot card reader, and in 2003, she published Ambulance Girl, a memoir about overcoming clinical depression in her early 50s by taking the training to become a certified EMT. It was made into a movie starring Kathy Bates. Obviously, I had too much to talk about with Jane Stern, so I kept it simple by asking questions about her protocol for fine diner dining. Jane, while one should not judge a book by its cover, one may judge a diner by its blank. Odor. One of the things that make me do a, a 180 when I walk in the door of a, of a diner that doesn't pass muster 
is there's usually a terrible smell of old grease and Lysol and, <laughs> and desperation. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's, you know, you're right. The outside, of course, that makes an impact. And if you're lucky enough and you walk in and you see a glass pie case with all the blue ribbons won at the state fair for their pies, I mean, that's going to sway you. But it's the odor and the help wanted sign in the window, mm. which usually translates to you're never going to get served. You know, well, we've all sat in restaurants, you know, and, and you hear crickets and, you know, you're waving your hands in the air and nobody's noticing you're there. That used to make me very nervous. In the olden days, since I've been doing this for over 40 years, the scientists used to say um, microwave in use used to throw me off because that, to me, meant that they weren't cooking from scratch, but now everybody uses a microwave. So, Jane, do you have a go-to dish when you walk into a new diner? Yes, I do. It's not really a Southwestern thing, so I'm not sure how it would play, you know, in in your part of the country. But my kind of go-to dish or my hallmark of greatness is an open hot turkey sandwich um, with mashed potatoes and gravy. Because the ways that they can screw that up are unbelievable. (laughs) Um, First of all, I hate, 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 hate deli turkey. So if I see those, you know, kind of reconstituted, you know, boar's head or whatever. There's sort of a shape, or or rather it's been shaped. I mean, a turkey is not shaped, you know, like an oval or, or a... You know, I mean, so I just can't stand that. I can't stand fake mashed potatoes, and I can't stand fake gravy. So you put them all together, and it's either somebody spent an awful lot of time on this dish, this homely little minor dish, or they don't care. And if they don't care, I don't care. The flip side of that same coin, Jane, is do you have a never-order dish? Oh, God. Yeah. Um, One of the little really lesser known things about my um, partnership with with Michael Stern, who, you know, is still my writing partner, is Michael is an omnivore. I mean, you you could put, you know, a piece of linoleum in front of him and he would try it. I have more food thing, like I hate ketchup, mustard, mayonnaise, pickles, relish, any condiment, and that this is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So, you know, I, I'm very fussy about what I eat, and Michael, as I said, you know, would eat shoes if you gave it to him. <laughs> I share your revulsion for condiments, except... You're kidding. No, no, absolutely, I do. I never get mustard, mayonnaise, or ketchup on anything. Oh However, I do like pickles, because they're, they're a side item. They're, a, they're its own food, right? They're not a condiment. Well, you know, it's funny because I like pickled beets, but pickled, <laughs> and I like cucumbers, but pickled pickles. I mean, um, there's some people who, if you give them something they don't like, they can put on a, a good show of, you know, sort of smiling and swallowing it. I'm like a two year old. I just like, so I actually spit it out in my lap. So I, you know, I try and be um, very careful to not offend pickle servers. 
Jane, does America have a soup problem? That is so funny you are asking me that because I just this week have been going all around Connecticut, where I live, going to soup places and finding the most phenomenal soup. Phenomenal is not a word I would usually connect to soup. With soup. Okay, well, tell me what you think of when you think of soup. I think of watered-down flavor, um, overcooked vegetables, stringy meat. Did you grow up? With, like, a Campbell's kid, you know, somebody <laughs> opening a jar. My grandmother made really good mulligan stew. Oh, I like mulligan. But that's not really soup. That's There you go. Maybe Connecticut is just having some sort of soup revolution or something. <laughs> but I went to one place called um, Soup Time, T-H-Y-M-E. Of course. It's just a little deli, but they have 15 of the most delicious soups that I have ever tasted. I mean, classic ones and unusual, interesting ones like gorgonzola, spinach, something or other, but they were just terrific. Now, is this, are you asking this because it's the fall and You've got soup on your mind? <laughs> I I almost never have soup on my mind, Jane. But okay. I do think that America may be experiencing a soup revolution is perhaps the cheeriest thing I've heard in months. So I think our listeners need to hear that. I think soup is going to become the next hot thing. Hot, that literally hot <laughs> thing. <laughs> Lukewarm thing. Okay, so then the kind of the flip of that coin is, do you ever do the salad bar? Oh, God. You are getting on really touchy subjects. Um, (laughs) I have gotten salmonella or tomate or or whatever it is from so many salad bars over the 45-year course of my job as a food writer that I will only go to um, a salad bar if I am the first person in line because I've seen I see people touch the food take the food put it back I mean unspeakable things so if if I'm number one yes I'll do it but it has to be my personal private salad bar hermetically sealed yes hermetically yes. sealed pathogen free In conjunction with the current exhibition, Longer Ways to Go, Photographs of the American Road, the Center for Creative Photography is welcoming road food experts Jane and Michael Stern for a free evening of conversation on Thursday, October 25th at 5.30 p.m. There's also a chance to go on a field trip with the Stearns to one of their favorite Tucson dining spots. We have a link to ticket information on the Arizona Spotlight page. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.